If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up, turn it on to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we finish out our series today on the parables of Jesus. And next week, we're going to beginning a, begin a new series called Explore God. Now, we're part of a collective effort. You may have seen around town, there are billboards, there are yard signs, etc. that say Explore God on them, and they have a website that people can go to. And the goal is to generate questions and interest about God within the community. And so that website uh, has a lot of answers and different videos to questions that people have about God. And then they can also go to one of the churches that are doing the series and hear a message that addresses a lot of the questions that people have uh, regarding the Heavenly Father. And so we'll be a part of that uh, effort beginning that new sermon series next week. Encourage you to invite people to church to be a part of that. Well, in Luke 16, Jesus deals with a very practical question. And here's the question. When it comes to your money, do you have a grip on it or does it have a grip on you? Jesus knew that if you don't get a proper perspective, if you don't get a grip on your finances, then they will get a grip on you. And when money has you in a headlock, it has the potential to destroy your life. Throughout the years of ministry, I've seen many marriages crumble because they couldn't get on the same page when it came to money. I've seen families fight with each other. I've seen scenes at funerals where families couldn't even get along because they were arguing and fighting over money. How many people in this world, if you think about it, find themselves going to jail because they have an unhealthy love of money? So in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable. And in this parable, he gives us a lot of practical advice for how we should handle the money that we've been blessed with within this world. Beginning in verse 1, he says to his disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. And so he called the manager in and asked, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be my manager. So Jesus begins the parable that there is a rich man. Now, you need to understand something here. There is nothing wrong with being financially well off. Uh, Sometimes in Christianity, we try to pour guilt upon people that have done well financially. There's nothing wrong with doing well financially. If the Lord blesses you in that way, understand that He has blessed you. Embrace it as a blessing and use it in such a way that you can bring honor to the name of the Heavenly Father. Uh, Also, don't feel guilty if you have some nice things and the Lord has blessed you in that way to have those nice things. You don't need to feel guilty about that. The parable is not saying that it's wrong to be blessed. All tax brackets struggle with perspective when it comes to money. Regardless of where you are in that spectrum, you're part of the struggle. And the case in point is here with the money manager. This money manager was squandering the rich man's assets. And so one day, he gets a call on his cell phone. He picks up his cell phone, and on the other end, there's a very pleasant voice that says, Mr. Trump would like to see you. 
And so he goes downtown and he goes up to the top of the tower and he goes to the most magnificent office that he has ever seen. And there the rich man brings him in and he says, the way that you're managing my money is absolutely disgraceful. You are squandering the assets. And so he looks him in the eye and he says, you're fired. Well, in verse 3, the manager said to himself, what should I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. Do you remember how you felt when you received that news? That news that caused your whole world to come crashing down. Well, the way that you felt then is how this money manager felt at this point. He had lost his job. He had lost his ability to generate income. He's heart sunk. And so he has a pep talk with himself. I imagine him kind of going in, splashing some water on his face and saying, what am I going to do? I'm puny. I'm out of shape. I can't get a job doing construction or agriculture because I can't dig the ditches, and I'm way too prideful to beg. I'm not going to sit along the side of the street and beg for money, so I need a plan. And so here's his plan. Evidently, he has a little bit of time before he's out the door. It doesn't seem like it's much, but he has a little bit of time. And so he decides he's going to do favors to people so that later on when he's unemployed, they will like him and hire him or take him into their house, as he says, so that perhaps he could manage their household. So before his termination is official, before they can wipe out his hard drive, before they take away his badge, before security escorts him out, in verse 5, he summons each one of his master's debtors And he says, how much do you owe my master? And the first one said, a hundred measures of olive oil. And he said, take your invoice, sit down quickly, and write 50. So he's like, all right, hurry up here. How much do you owe my master? Security's coming. Write down 50, okay? Change the invoice so that you don't owe as much. And next he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Well, take your invoice. And write down 80. Well, time passes. The money manager is moved along, and the owner audits his books. And he discovers what the money manager did. Now, naturally, the rich man is upset because, after all, he was owed so much money by these people, and the money manager had had them lessen their bill. But the rich man's in a conundrum because what can he do? Apparently, the money manager had the authority to lower the debts. He was on the way out, but before he went, in his last official act, he lowered these debts. And so in verse 8, the master kind of scratches his head and praises the unrighteous manager because he acted astutely. And then Jesus says, For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And so I picture the rich man shaking his head 
in disbelief. I can't believe he did this to me. And yet at the same time, there's a little smile on his face because he's like, well, I got to give him credit. He figured out a way to stay out of the ditch. Well, it's right here that the story shifts from an earthly story to a spiritual meaning. You remember that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And so Jesus identifies two groups. If you miss this part, you will miss the meaning of the parable. Jesus identifies the sons of this age and the sons of light. Now, the sons of light are believers. They are those who have embraced the message of Jesus Christ. And because they are believers in Christ, they live life with a different set of priorities. They live life with a different timetable. When you are a son of light, you understand that your life is lived with an eternal clock rather than a temporal clock. The other group that Jesus identifies is the sons of this age. The sons of this age are unbelievers. They do not have hope of eternity. They are handcuffed by the ethics and the views of this world. And so they live their lives trying to absorb every moment, trying to absorb every item that life has to offer because they are stuck in this realm. What the money manager did was shrewd but it was also dishonest. But the rich man and the money manager were both sons of this age. They spoke the same language. They understood what it meant to try to manipulate things for their own advantage. And Jesus teaches us that the sons of light should have a different view of money than the sons of this age. And so Jesus begins giving us some practical points about how to have a good grip on money, how to have a good grip on your finances. First of all, he says that we need to understand that money can be a tool to lead people to the things of God. In verse 9, he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, he's putting a parallel to what the money manager did. The money manager was trying to make friends here on earth so that whenever his job failed, he could be welcomed into their home. Just like the money manager used money to make friends so that he would always have a place to live, Jesus says, okay, the sons of light, the believers, you ought to use the money that you have so that others might live with us in heaven. Okay, don't get get overcome by the wording of the verse. The principle is quite simple. Take the money that God has blessed you with, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little, and invest it, use it in such a way that you might advance the gospel, and others might live with us in heaven. Harold Mathena is a country preacher. He has spent his life uh, doing evangelism and preaching in little country churches. And so 
he went to work when he was a young man. He went to work in the oil fields to support his preaching habit. <laughs> he didn't make a lot of money in those small country churches, and so he, he started working out in the oil fields. Well, he had a very active, creative mind, and in the process of working there in the oil industry, he began developing ideas for pressure control valves. Eventually, he secured several patents, and he started his own business, and over the years, the Lord blessed that business. He became very well off, and he had a very large business. Well, in 2012, he sold his business, and the public number was that he sold his business for $240 million. Well, that Friday, he sells his business. On Sunday, he goes in, and he writes out a check, a tithe check to his church, and puts it in the offering plate. Could you imagine the offering counters that Sunday? They're going through, whoa, (laughs) it's not a joke. (laughs) You know, it's real. They're still picking those guys off the floor whenever they counted that offering. Then he took some of what he made, and he started giving it to various schools that he wanted to invest in. He gave a lot to Oklahoma Baptist University. He gave uh, a large sum to Southwestern Seminary, and there over at the seminary, we're going to build a building that is going to house a college that trains ministers and young men and women who are going into the ministry. They can go there, and they can study and learn theology, and then they will go into pulpits across this country and preach the gospel and serve in churches. It's also going to house a ministry called the Global Theological Initiative, where the seminary forms partnerships with international seminaries around the world, and those pastors that will be leading churches around the world will be taught the basics of theology and and what the Scriptures have taught us. They'll be taught that there. And so what, what he has done was he has taken the money that God has given him here and he has invested it in such a way that the gospel is going to continue to go out around the world. Now, I promise you that he's going to make a lot of friends with those gifts. But beyond that, he's using the blessings that God has given him so that others might live with him in heaven. Now, here's a question for you. Are you spending money in ways that make an eternal difference? You say, Lash, I don't have $290 million. The quantity is not the issue. It's not an issue of whether you have millions or whether you have $290. But are you taking what God has entrusted to you and investing it, using it in such a way that it makes an eternal difference. I know you need to eat. I know you need shelter. I I know you have basics in life. But we also have a need to be a cheerful giver and to give of that which we've received in ways that make a true difference. Well, secondly, Jesus teaches us that when you show yourself to be faithful with little things, God can trust you with greater things. In verse 10, he says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? 
Now, Jesus is really diving deep here. He's applying the scalpel to the infection, and he's saying, okay, the way in which you view your assets is a way in which we can measure your potential for faithfulness. If you are unrighteous in little things, then you will be unrighteous in much. If you are unfaithful when it comes to the management of your finances, then how are you going to be faithful in the management of those things which are of spiritual nature? And if you've not been faithful with what others have entrusted to you, how are you going to be faithful with what is entrusted to you by the Heavenly Father? Now, the money manager had been unfaithful with the master's money, and it cost him his job. And then he had been deceitful in order to get a new job. If Jesus had told a sequel to the parable, and there is no sequel in Scripture, but hypothetically, if Jesus had told a sequel to the parable, I think you would find the money manager getting fired again because he wasn't managing money. Money was managing him. And guys like this, uh, they'll spend their whole lives trying to be rich and they'll wind up dying with nothing. They don't really own anything because they're owned by everything. Now, let me put my dad hat on for just a moment. I know a lot of you guys are happily married, but some of you are not. Teenagers here, and this refers to both genders, but let me specifically speak to the ladies. Ladies, please don't marry this guy, okay? You run into this guy who's unfaithful with his finances and and can't be trusted and is deceitful. Don't marry this guy. He'll talk a big game. He'll flash a lot of stuff, but don't marry him, okay? You got it? Now, some of us say, oops, too late. I'm already married to the guy. Well, if you're married to the guy, make sure you pay the bills, okay? Make sure you know what's going on in the finances, and this goes both ways. I see ladies that do the exact same thing as the money manager as well, and I can't count, and just being real with you here, I, I can't count how many marriages I've seen ruined because the husband or the wife could not be faithful when it comes to money. They may have been faithful with their body, but they couldn't be faithful to their spouse when it came to money. Now, a third principle that Jesus teaches us here is you cannot serve both God and money. In verse 13, he says, No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. Now again, there's nothing wrong with having uh, nice things. If God has blessed you in such a way that you have a large bank account, there's nothing wrong with with that. But make sure you grasp this point. If money becomes your master, it's going to drive you away from the Lord. If you become a slave to money, 
it's going to lead you away from the Heavenly Father. There's ultimately five things you can do with your money. Number one, you can pay bills or pay your taxes. And you have a lot of incentive to spend your money that way. Every day when you go out to the mailbox, you get written reminders that you owe people money. If you fail to meet those reminders, they'll give you verbal reminders. And eventually they'll take your things from you. So you have a lot of incentive. But the focus on that is usually making sure that you take care of me and mine. You can also use the money that you have to buy things. And you have a lot of incentive to do that as well. There is a multi-billion dollar industry that's out there to lure you into buying things. Generally, the focus there is taking care of me and mine. You can also pay debt. Now, there's not a lot of incentive in our culture to pay down debt, but here and there you find some encouragement to do that and say, okay, let's be wise about this. You don't need to live with a lot of debt, and so you need to pay that off. But generally, again, the focus there is making sure that me and mine are taken care of. You can also save it. You don't get a lot of cultural incentive to save money. Uh, Generally, uh, you, you might have some motivation at work to put some money into your 401k, but there's not a lot of talk about the importance of saving money within our culture. But you know that you need to take care of me and mine, and one of these days you're going to get older, and so you need to have some money set aside. But then there's a fifth thing that you can do with money, and that is you can give it. Culturally, you receive almost no incentive to give money away. Yet the focus of giving money away can be God and others. And so I want to give you a simple plan that can produce radical change in your life. When it comes to our money, for most of us, we approach it in this way. Live, save, give. And so we have these needs in our life. And the Heavenly Father in the Sermon on the Mount said, or Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God knows you have these needs. You have needs like food, water, shelter, uh, different things that your family needs in order to survive. And so a part of the money that you have goes to living. And then you also say, okay, well, if I have anything left over, I'm going to save a little bit. And then if I have anything left over from that, maybe I'll give some. And so for the majority of Americans... Our priorities when it comes to money is we're going to live, and then if we have any left over, we'll save, and if we really get blessed one day, maybe then we'll give. I want to encourage you to turn that order around. And instead of live, save, give, go give, save, live. Take what you have and say, I'm going to give some of this away. I'm going to recognize that it doesn't have control over me. I am not a slave to it. I am going to cheerfully, generously, willfully give away some of my money. The Scriptures teach the principle of tithing, getting to that point where you can cheerfully give as much as 10% of what God has given to you back to Him, back into ministry. I'm going to give, and then I'm going to save, and then I'm going to live. And I'm going to prioritize my spending in that way so that I can cheerfully give, be a good steward and save, and also make sure that my needs are taken care of.
rich or poor, young or old, everyone in this room has to deal with the money question. So I go back to the opening question. Do you have a grip on your finances or do they have a grip on you? At Murphy Road Baptist Church, we have some of the most generous, faithful people that I've ever met. And I would be remiss if I did not finish this, if I finished this sermon. I would also be remiss if I never finished this sermon. You know, you guys would not like that either. But if I finished this sermon and didn't say thank you, I want to thank you for your generosity, for your faithfulness. Your generosity and faithfulness support my family. They support the ministries of this church. And we are exceedingly grateful to you. Uh, This Sunday begins a new budget year for our church. And as we finish the last budget year, I am so, so very, very thankful that we have completed what I believe to be the strongest financial year in the history of our church. And it's because people like you have been generous and faithful to give to the ministry. Now, some of us, though, if we were real honest, would have to say when it comes to money, I'm more of a son of this age than I am a son of light. It's got a grip on me, but I don't want to be this way. I want to have good perspective on it. I want to be a good steward. I want to manage it in a healthy way. And so my, my prayer for you today is that you will not live your life dominated by things that have no life. And I want to encourage you to take this sermon beyond the room, to sit down with your finances. If you're married, sit down with your spouse. And in prayer, get a grip on your financial situation. If you don't have a budget, establish a budget. If you've been uh, living on everything and not saving anything, not giving anything, flip that paradigm around where you say, we're going to give, we're going to save, we're going to live. Even if we have to cut back in some areas, we're going to be appreciative of what we have and live within our means. We're not going to be envious of other people's lives. We're going to be grateful when God blesses us with more. But I encourage you, take this beyond this room. Sit down together, prayerfully look at this matter that we all have to deal with and get a grip on your finances. We can help you with this. We have Bible studies around here that we periodically offer on financial management. We have curriculum that we can connect you to. We have uh, ministry partners at APM that will actually even, if you desire, it's got to be your decision, but if you desire, they'll sit down with you and help you develop a financial strategy and plan for your life. Because we don't want to see you live your life dominated by things that have no life. We want to see you blessed and using the blessings that God has given you in a good, faithful way that brings glory to His name. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment. During this time, you can feel free to pray at your seat. 
You can come forward and pray here at the altar. If there's something that I may pray with you about, I'll be here at the front as well. Others will sing the hymn with the band. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this parable and the truth that is in it. And for many of us, there's a level of discomfort whenever we talk about this subject. Yet for all of us, there's also a reality that we have to we have to deal with our finances. Help us, Lord, not to have prodigal son syndrome where we envy somebody else's life. Help us, Father, to live the life that you have blessed us with. And whether we have little or whether we have much, help us to be appreciative for what we have. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to manage and spend those dollars in a way that is honoring to you. Lord, we pray for our physical needs. We pray that you might provide us with good jobs. We pray, Father, for food, water, shelter, those things which we need in life. We pray also, Lord, that you'll help us to have a generous spirit, that we will cheerfully give, realizing that we can never outgive what you've given us. And help us, Lord, also to be faithful stewards that save for the days to come as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.